here and ain't no wannabes here With some not so nice advice for your writing career To be clear, no punches will be pulled But the punch may be spiked How they like before they get on the mic To my left we got the mighty Mer Lafferty And if I piss her off, believe me, she'll come after me And her co-host met Evan Wallace On the right, yes, she may be half as hype But she could take him in a fight So settle in, folks, buckle in and boot up Time to meddle in a way to make your writer shut up It's hard work, but the perk is that it's fun and exciting Facebook will still be there when you're done writing Ditch Diggers! Ditch Diggers! Coming to you live from our separate but still awesome tanning salons, it is the Ditch Diggers with Mer Lafferty and Matt Wallace. How are you, Matt? Getting brown yet? You know, got a nice, uh, got a nice golden brown. As uh, Martin Yan would say, because if Yan can cook, so can you. I don't know if you ever saw that show, but it was amazing. Um, I did. I don't remember anything about. Uh, oh, you're talking about food. Never mind. Yeah. I'm slow. One of the things that Martin Yan would say often, you got to get it a nice golden brown. That was yeah. like one of the. That's one of the drinking game things from that show. Like every, gotcha. Nice and golden brown, you take a shot. But I love Martin Yan. That's not what we're here to talk about today, but I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> also, when I picture our separate tanning salons, I picture like that shot from from a movie where like it's literally our tanning beds are separated by the wall in between us. Yeah. Then it's like the shot from the side. Cause, you know, even in our hypothetical ditch diggers manner, we have to be responsible and socially distant. So of we're course. doing We are. But, yeah. We are. And GTL, baby. Gym tan laundry every day. Yeah. Have <laughs> you really never heard that before? No, I haven't. I'm trying I'm trying to be on board, but uh um I don't I did want to mention one thing because we often do this at the end of the show and I want to do it at the beginning of the show. You are you have your new middle grade book out. It's called Bump and um you are actually going to be on Marguerite and Alistair's uh stream this Wednesday, right? Yes, as we're sitting here recording this, I don't mean you know we don't we don't know when these things are going to come out. It's a big mystery in the universe. It depends on what. <laughs> it's you know, not like we do it ourselves. Together, so, but as we sit here recording this, bump my debut, my de- my debut. I know words. Uh, mm-hmm. My debut novel came out uh, a little over a week ago, um, and yeah. So next week, again, as we sit here recording this on February fourth, next week I will be streaming. Uh, with uh, our dear friends, Alistair and uh, and Marguerite, are they, are they both going to be there? I'm actually not yes. sure. Yes, yes, they will both. They they both do their uh, the Wednesday night stream. Alistair does most of it, but Marguerite's kind of the um, vocal producer, kind of like old time radio shows used to have, when the producer would just like say say stuff and worry about the mic and then say more stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, it's they got a really good chemistry going. That's cool. I know. I just got confused. I watched some of like you and Al and it was just you and Al. So I wasn't sure. That's why I asked that. But yeah. So I'm going to be doing that next week with them. And I'm really excited because I don't, for one, I just don't get to talk to them enough and I, I love them dearly. Yeah. Uh, they're like the, they're like the British version of my, me and my wife. We always say, so uh, yeah, it's going to be good. We're going to be talking about bump and uh, other things I'm sure. And I'm excited about that. But yeah, it's a, it's an exciting time or despite, all of the things, you know, yes. the unyielding things. Well, I'm very it's hard. Uh, it's hard. And I think this is something to talk about on Ditch Diggers because um, I had this in 2018 when things were on fire, but I had stuff to celebrate. And it was very hard to sit here and go, wow, everybody else is really unhappy and I'm having a great professional year. It was it was awkward, but you know you still have to look at the happy parts when, especially when things get dark and sad. Yeah, you know it's that it's that balance between uh, you know personal optimism and um, whatever the the other side of that is. I'm having trouble coming up with it now, but just balancing being being able to be personally optimistic and happy while recognizing that things outside of your sphere may not be amazing for other people or the world in general, but you know. Oh, sure. Somebody loses their job. You don't want to say, Hey, but I just got a new book deal. You know, that's not, yeah. <laughs> that's not how you want no, to do it. But I know. And I feel that because like last year, I, I, I had that a lot, you know, it's like, I have all these, all these friends who are going through so many struggles and hardships and you're trying to do the best you can to support and help them. But like, you can't, 
fix it for anybody. Or, you yeah. know, at least I in that position. But at the same time, like I was, I'm very fortunate to work in the video game industry, and like the video game industry and my company in particular did like great business wise last mm-hmm. year. Like it was very secure and stable and prosperous because everybody was home playing video games. Yeah. Like, so, like on the one hand, you're very, very happy that you, you know, you're in this very fortunate, privileged position of having, you know, financial security and being able to do this cool job and the things that you are doing are, are successful and you're proud of them. But at the same time, it's like they're being played, the, like the games I'm writing are being played by my friends who are like sitting home unemployed. You know, it's just, it really fucking sucks. Yeah. And, and I don't want to be out like, celebrating that in front of in front of everybody and making people feel worse you know yeah so it's it's tough man and yeah but you gotta but you do have to let yourself enjoy all of those things and be proud of those things you know otherwise what's what's the point man you know yeah exactly you can't wait for everybody else to be happy before you can enjoy your own happiness yeah, that's very well said. And that's very true. Like, I do th- I do think there's a context for it and attack for it. And like, you know, not, again, not like celebrating in people's faces when they're having a hard time. But like, do allow yourself to be proud and be pleased with what's going on, you know, and have that and have that for yourself. We get, you know, we get a finite amount of time on this planet, Mer, except for me. I'm going to live forever okay. because, <laughs> because of technology. I'm going to titanium and lasers well they're gonna freeze you and let you and give you time to figure out what uh what hold the guy had on you who killed you exactly get out of it we'll write a book about it and it'll be set in a space deli and everything will come full circle um (laughs) does anybody even get that joke i don't know that's 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 such an inside baseball thing i'm sorry i I can't let this thing die. I love it too much, Mur. It's very, it's very important to me. It's very I've, dear to I've my heart. really been enjoying the uh, Office Ladies podcast. Have you been listening to that? I have not. I Dude. know. Dude, I have not had time to check it out yet. It's it's totally worth it. it, it it's actually made me want to rewatch even episodes I haven't been that interested in because you went inside baseball. You know, it's it's Angela Kinsey and and uh, Jenna Fisher and. It's nice hearing Angela Kinsey laugh because she's a very, very funny improv comedian. Only she played the uptight, religious, unhappy, permanently unhappy cat lady, Angela, on on The Office. So it's nice hearing her get a little uh, silly. No, that is that is awesome. And just shows you how good she really is because she embodied the character so perfectly and beautifully but that is not that is like the exact opposite of who she actually is um no i definitely do need to check that out because i love the office and it is intrinsic to our friendship or like that's that's another it is yeah very important we still have never gone to benihana together we we still never have and that is we need that needs to be you know post uh post pandemic goals right there that should be on the post pandemic bucket list yes it should and we need to argue about Suba versus Nikiri. Yes. Because <laughs> Suba's better when you're working with this quantity, Mer. I don't know if you know that or not. I have heard that. Yes. So, again, Inside Baseball. Anyway, this is a show about writing as a profession, Mer. It is a show about writing as a profession and the business problems uh, and solutions we come up with and against. That was a very bad sentence. Go on, Matt. You go. It was a bad sentence and a worse segue, which is really should be the tagline. <laughs> oh, I think bad, bad sentence s- and worse segue. I'm writing it down. Go on. Right there. Now, so we wanted to start by dovetailing off our uh, 2021 premiere that we did uh, a while back, where you talked about your um, search for a new agent when you unexpectedly found yourself, and through no fault of your own, agentless or her. And- I'm sorry. What? It wasn't her fault either. I'm not, I didn't fire her, and she didn't oh, yeah. fire me. That that's wanted to make that clear. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was trying to do there. But yeah, you should go back and check. It was a good episode, and we talked about a lot of important stuff. But I so on your uh, your other podcast, Mar, though your other podcast, which I refer to as the other woman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, I believe, you were asked some questions about conversations with when you're having a conversation with a potential agent for the first time. Is that correct? Yes, as a new author. Yes, and that's kind of the difference. So, so last episode we talked. We talked a little bit about how you, as an established author who has had 
agents was, you know, sort of looking for a new agent at this point in your career. So now we kind of want to rewind a little bit and talk about when you haven't had a book deal yet, when you haven't had an agent yet, you're getting to talk to an agent for the very first time. Like, what do you want to ask them? What what do you want that conversation to be like? Which is a very different perspective than your perspective. Mer being a podcast Hall of Famer and a multi-award winning and nominated rock star author. You're a rock star. You haven't said that one before. That's exciting. <clears throat> no, you are. You are. You're basically like, you know, Frampton comes alive, but for genre fiction. Okay. I don't know where that came from. I don't know either. Um, but one thing that, that <laughs> going back on in my history, I am the, um, having uh, the agent relationship is so much like a marriage. It's, it's, it almost feels like that's overused, but every time something weird comes up, you think that's pretty much just like a marriage, including the fact that because I'm on my sixth agent, I kind of feel like, any agent in the future would look at me and think, what the hell is wrong with you? Like people often do to people who've been married many, many, many times. Um, but one thing that happened was my third, second agent could not sell my book and she fired me. And um, one thing I think that's really important is to discuss with the prospective agent what they see if they're interested i mean you know might need to find a better way to say this but if they're interested in you or your book because if they're interested in the book and they don't sell the book they can drop you like mine did to me but if they're interested in you and your career then they see potential in you and if the book doesn't sell then they will work with you to do something else and something better and keep working and um you know, after that experience, I know that I I need somebody who's invested in my career and not the book that they see right right then. No, I think that you hit on one of the absolutely central, like you know, really important things about about when you set out to get an agent for the first time. I do want to take issue with the phrase "fired me" when it comes to an agent, though. I got I got to do that because I really hate when authors say that because it implies that you are the agent's employee, and that is not true at all what words uh, do you say like you said dropped which is that's perfectly reasonable like okay. they dropped this but i just I, I really don't like i don't like it when authors say my agent fired me your agent cannot fire you you do not work for your agent it is a partnership that you're undertaking and if anything they really work for you so there's that but yes yeah so not trying to give you a hard time it's just one of my that's just one of my things i hate that i hate that phrase because it just perpetuates this idea of writers not being in a position of power in these relationships and these dynamics. So, but yeah, dropped you, I think is, is reasonable, which happens. And the other thing, just to circle back real quick is I, I, I totally agree with where you're coming from. Like you've had a bunch of agents, you start to internalize that and feel like, well, people are going to view me like I'm some kind of damaged goods or something, yeah. you know? And I just categorically disagree with that as a thing. And it's so weird because like, if you were, if you're like a screenwriter, you work in the entertainment business People change agents all the time in that in that business. It's such a strange thing to me when I look like at that versus publishing, where every author I know worries about that. They're worried like, well, well you know, if I have different agents, people are going to start to think I'm no good or whatever. And I just, I don't think that's any indication of anything, or should or at least it shouldn't be an indication of anything. Why? Like, it's script... like, sorry. I'm... No, go ahead. Now, why do scriptwriters change agents so often? I think because the, there isn't, and not specifically even um, script writers, but just everybody in the entertainment industry does that. And I and I think one of the reasons is because it doesn't have that stigma. It's just part of doing business. You know, it's like the idea that if you have more than one publisher, there's somehow something wrong with you. Because like if you were really good, why wouldn't one publisher just want to publish all your books forever? Yeah. You know, it's, to me, it's the exact same thing. These are just business relationships, and business relationships evolve and change over time. Needs change, goals change. There's nothing wrong with changing agents. There's nothing unhealthy about changing agents. You know, your career is this constantly fluid, evolving thing, and so is an agent's uh, career. You know, well, like you experience, like you, your last agent, Jen, like she arrived at a place where she was like, "This isn't something I want to pursue anymore." So I'm going to go do something else, which yeah. meant you had to. Agent. No one's at fault there. No. There's nothing wrong with either of you. She wasn't a bad agent. You're not a bad author. It's just you parted ways because that made sense for your relationship at the time. So 
I want to get back to the central thing, but that's just something I wanted to hit upon because I just, especially for newer writers, I really think it's important for them to understand that like your agent should serve your needs and your goals at the time that you have those things. And it's okay for those things to change. And if your agent isn't serving your needs and your goals at the time, it's okay to look for other opportunities in your relationships with other agents. And you shouldn't feel like there's any kind of stigma around it. And there shouldn't be any kind of stigma around it. You know, it's, you need to have the right agent for you for the phase of your career that you're in. And that might not be the same person all the way through, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, like it or not, or find it odd or not, I believe it does happen more often that, that the relationships get very personal. I know somebody who's, um, they had given their agent a signed copy of every book that the agent sold. And when they left their agent, the agent sent those books back, (laughs) which is just amazingly childish. And, um, you know, it is, it is an unspoken rule it's, no, it's actually spoken. It's not like written anywhere in a contract, but uh, no agent will talk to you if you are currently represented until you sever ties with your current agent. You right. can't like, you know, have a parachute of somebody that, uh, you know, knowing you're going to have somewhere, somewhere uh, safe to go. And now maybe you can like talk on the side and not say anything official, but nobody will agree to like officially agree to work with you until you've left your agent. No, that's Which is why it feels like, you know, a marriage because nobody's going to want to date you when you're still married. Some do, but you know. I completely agree with you that it does get very personal and does feel like, you know, like however you view marriage, you know personally like you can say it's like any long-term emotional relationship that you have because it does become that you know you're you're human beings there's going to be attachment there's going to and you're inextricably bound to each other in this honestly really intimate way you know when you're when you're especially when you're writing fiction because even though it's our profession and our business it's also a very personal art form you know and you all that gets intertwined with these things so no i'm not i'm not in any way arguing that it doesn't become like that and it doesn't get very personal i'm just but i don't think that invalidates any of the other things that i mentioned either you know you got to balance all those things and marriage is in too for the same reasons you know it doesn't mean there's not it's there's not going to be fallout it's not going to be a hard thing to do but sometimes changes are necessary and just like there shouldn't be a stigma against divorcees there shouldn't be a stigma against you know writers who who feel the need to change agents or need to change agents for some reason but yeah no it can be deeply personal and it's weird while you're saying that i was like thinking about um, like times I've had with my, with my agent where it's been like, you know, well, you know, when I had the last book that came out, they called me on the day of the release to like say congratulations. And I didn't get a call this time. And like, you know, like you start getting, you get into this headspace of like, it is very much like a significant other where it's like, well, they used to do this and now they don't do that anymore. Yeah. I just feel like the fire isn't there anymore. Yeah. You know, that's a real thing. And it's, it's a perfectly natural thing. Like, I think you need to keep it in a healthy context and keep it in a healthy perspective, but it's it's an inevitability when you're when you're human beings dealing with this very intimate interpersonal stuff. Yeah. But anyway, to get to get back to the core of this thing, and I just sorry I sidetracked this, but I felt like those were a couple of important points that, that needed to be covered. Um, I do think uh, absolutely that your point about you need to uh, get a sense from the agent if they're interested in your book or they're interested in you. Like that is a very, very important thing for for you as an author looking to have a long term career. Um, so how do we broach that or like how do we actually do that? What are the, what are the questions that we ask to get that sense? Um, I'd say, what would you consider? Uh, I'd probably ask who you would send this book to. And if it didn't sell, what would be our next step? You say our next step, because you assume you're still working together after the book does yeah, its thing or doesn't do its thing. Very good way to good, to, good way to broach it and good language to use there. And, you know, I think, yeah, that the answer to that question is going to give you a lot of information about the agent, because if they're just fixated on the one book and they don't, they're not, and they haven't even thought about a plan past that. I would consider that a red flag, like right away, you know, 
So I think that's a very important thing to get down there and to go from there. And, you know, and I like I, I also do like questions about how kind of getting a sense of how they view uh, you, you know, how they view what you do and your your kind of your path as an author. You know, and I think it's OK to ask your agent how what they see as your five year plan, you know, yeah. like those kind of those kinds of questions are totally fine. And I mean, it's, I honestly think it's okay if the first, especially the first conversation, serious conversation you have with an agent, it's okay if they don't have all the answers mapped out at that point, you know, like you're just getting to know each other. You just want to get a sense that they are thinking about these things and they do view you as more than a book or even one series. Like they view you as an author who they want to help uh, develop their long-term career, you know? Yeah. So those are that that definitely is a good foundational place to start. <clears throat> what else do we think is important, Mer? So establish so establishing uh, whether they are interested in the book uh, alone or you as an author in your long term career. What other things do we think are important? I think the first thing, um, and this is all you, you need to realize. Think about what you want from an agent. I want um, I want somebody who's friendly and I can contact when I'm feeling like I want to climb onto the church tower with a gun and who I know will talk me down and somebody I'm comfortable with. This is all asking for more of a friendship type relationship than business. And I understand that some people don't want that. Some agents don't want that. They don't want to, you know, ultimately they are a business partner and they're not your friend, but, uh, Having a friendly relationship is very important to me. One thing I didn't know until I signed with Jen was uh, it's important to me that you go to conventions. And I'm a science fiction author, and I know our audience goes beyond that. But I realized I'd been through four agents, and none of them had gone to science fiction conventions. And suddenly I was with an agent who... I met at a science fiction convention. She went to most of the ones that I went to, not just not because of me, but she saw the the value of of mixing with the people and finding new authors and meeting up with your authors at conventions and having that FaceTime and knowing that I'd met her in person that had uh that meant a lot to me. Now, I haven't met Seth in person, but I have heard that he does go to cons. And so whenever we can actually be in the same room as other people again, um, I'm hoping I can meet up with him in person. But uh, I think whether you... And again, this is just something you need to ask yourself first. Is it important for you to know the person face-to-face. I didn't think it was until I had it, and I'm like, this is so much better. It felt like we could communicate better. You could read body language. It's a, you just get to know somebody better in person, or at least when you can see them. I don't know if Zoom works that way or not, but uh, anyway. So think about what you need and then ask them how they work, if it works with, with what you need. And yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's especially when you're first starting out, these are things you don't necessarily know or think about, like these nuances of the relationship. And, and, you know, you've never been in an Asian client relationship before, so you might not know what you're going to need. But it's worth thinking about the kind of person you are. You know, like Mer says, you may be somebody who needs that emotional support from their agent when they're, when they're, you know, going through spirals or having hard times or whatever. I'm kind of the opposite of that. You know, I like to be left alone the majority of the time until there's something really to talk about. You know, I don't, I don't like long conversations about what's, what's going on with me because I tend to be more of an internal person. So that's not a, as big a priority to me as it is to Mer. And there's no right or wrong answer to those questions. Those are very individual personal preferences, neither is right or wrong, but it's all about what you need and what the Asian is willing or able to provide you. You know, it's, and then there are things like, uh, when it comes to your work, you know, your actual work, do you have an agent who is really going to, going to be really big into, uh, editing and giving you and working, you know, with you on your manuscript, or do you have an agent that takes a more hands-off approach to that? And it's just like, it is what it is, and this is what I'm representing, and I'm not here to tell you how to write or whatever. Right. Um, there are some that, agents who are very hands-off, and you hand yeah. them your book, and they hand it to editors, and others yeah. want to get into it with you. And again, there, there's no right or wrong thing, right or wrong answer to that question. 
one may work for you and one may not. You may be somebody who doesn't want your agent digging into your manuscript. You may be somebody who's like, I write what I write. This is what I want to submit. You know, you can certainly give me uh, your thoughts on it. But like, I just I don't want an agent digging into my work and telling me to change things or I don't want an editor. I don't want an editor author relationship with my agent. That's okay. And there are plenty of agents who aren't like that. Now, there are plenty of agents like Merced who also are like they they are very involved in their clients work and what they're doing. And some authors love that. Um, I, in particular, one of the things that really appealed to me about the agent I have now is that they were an editor at a, at a, at a big publisher before they were an agent. And they're a very good editor. And I like having that. I like having that input and putting that polish on it before we take it out to submit. You know, I trust my agent's eye and my agent's perspective and my agent's editorial opinion. And I thought that was a really great bonus to have when I signed with them. Like, I'm getting an agent and a very experienced editor. I thought that was great. Now, that's me. You may not want that, and that's fine, but you need to understand, but you need to know, like, you know, how much of that do I want? And then what kind of style does my agent have in that respect? Because if there's someone who's really hands on and you don't want that in your work, then that's not a relationship that's going to work for you. If you're someone who feels like you need a lot of guidance and a lot of input, uh, you know, and your stuff is very raw when you first, when you first finish and first turn it in. And your and your editor is not I mean, your agent is not someone who's a, who's a good editor or wants to do that. Then that's not going to work for you either. So, you know, these are all things you need to think about. You need to think about your personality and what you need, like emotionally, and then what your work needs. And you know, and, and your agent needs to vibe with all of that. So, those are all really big items to have on your checklist when you talk to an agent. And I know that's tough. And the other thing I was thinking about while we were sitting here talking is, I think when you first get into this, unless you had some advice like we're giving now, like you tend to think of an author agent relationship as a standard boilerplate kind of thing, you know, like there's like you sign with an agent and then you have a standard author agent relationship. And there's just one kind of thing that happens there. And is you know, that's going to take care of itself somehow. Am I wrong about that? Is that making sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know about the fact that the author agent relationship can have many different intricacies. Yeah. And it really does. And it's very dependent on you and on the agent as people and your, and your styles. And there's all different styles and all different methods. There's no one process that exists between uh, agents and authors. And that should be what your conversation is really about. You know, I think it's a, and the other thing I think is, you know, you tend to make it about whatever you're working on. Then you want to talk to them about the book. And what Murr and I are saying is you need to take it beyond that. If you're really thinking about signing with an agent, because it's such an important relationship in your career and really think about all these kind of meta things. And it can be it can be tough, but, you know, break it down. I would say break it down into a checklist and then, like, write down the questions associated with the items on the checklist and just have everything ready to go that you can refer to if you're not somebody who's great at talking to people, which a lot of authors are not great at talking to people, and that's okay. This is not a job about talking to people. but That's why we like it, to lock ourselves in a room and write. Exactly. Talk. Yeah. I can certainly... Uh, empathize with resentment toward things that are not writing the older yeah. i get the more i resent all the things you have to do in this job they're not writing you know yeah so uh, yes those are those are so is there anything is there anything else you would say for for a foundational kind of conversation the big ticket items Mer? i think i think we've covered a lot of them either in this one or monday's episode i think we could get to our next uh topic of discussion Cool, because we have multi-topics. We're multi-topic-ed. That's not a word. That's not even a thing. I don't know what I'm talking about. I followed you, though, so it was language. So what is our next topic, Mark? Our next topic is the latest Twitter brouhaha, which someone decided to put out harsh writing advice. Yes, the harsh writing advice. This blew up, man. That was... And here's the thing, we're, we're not doing this because we feel like, well, you know, a lot of people are talking about it on Twitter, so we have to talk about it. I actually want to talk about both, we, we'll, we'll get to the meat of like what this was actually about, but I also want to talk a little bit about uh, how this kind of thing happens and what it is and kind of sort of what, if any, cumulative value it actually has as a, as a, as a discourse, I guess. Because, you know, this, this things happen every week. You know, we have, we have what we call the Twitter main character now. That's the thing I feel like. When did that start, Mer? Do you I, remember? I don't think I've heard the Twitter main character. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're not, you're so much healthier than me. You're like barely. 
No, well, the idea, the idea, the idea of the Twitter main character, I just started noticing it uh, within the last year. So it may have been going, I like, I'm not on the cutting edge of anything culturally, but anyway, the concept is basically like, you know, every day or every week you get one person who has such a tremendously bad take or does something so tremendously awful that they become the main character of Twitter that everybody's talking about. And it's not a good thing to be Twitter's main character. It's not a thing you should aspire to be because it's never something good. It's yeah. never the main character is never somebody who everybody's like, this person had a really good take. Let's just all talk about how good the take was. It's always something like, you know, the, the bean can dad or whatever the hell all that was. You know, it's always something awful. Yeah. Uh, so and we get we uh, so like I think it's a really big subgenre subgenre that is like the main character for uh, writing Twitter because we have those a lot. I feel like every week somebody with 300 followers or 12 followers says something really dumb and then writing Twitter becomes obsessed with whatever they said for, you know, the next week and everybody's giving their take on it and retweeting it and, you know, dunking on it or or analyzing it seriously and it just it blows up. And the the most recent example of this was Someone tweeted harsh writing advice, and that's what they said. They said, literally wrote that. So harsh writing advice, you know, colon, uh, all the writers are your competition. You know, they're not your friends. They're your competition, and you need to deal with that. And that, Which is funny, because that's not advice. No, that's not That's not actually, yeah, that's not advice at all. Yeah. <laughs> criteria for what advice is. That's just a statement. It's like, you know, it's like when you open a fortune cookie. It's yes. not a fortune Exactly. Yeah. Although most of the time that is advice and that's why it's not a fortune. So it's different. But anyway, so that wasn't even advice, but it's just, it's one of those things that just became, you know, a viral phenomenon, like more so than most of the writing main character stuff that I feel like happens on Twitter. Cause like harsh writing advice started trending and like Seth Rogen was, you know, tweeting harsh writing advice. It got to that like five inception layers thing where I don't even think most of the people tweeting about it even knew where it came from. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, everyone was tweeting their version of harsh writing advice. Uh, and, you know, it had all the shades that this kind of discourse had. Like, some, a lot of it was jokes. A lot of it was ironic, harsh writing advice jokes. A lot of it was, uh, you know, actual harsh writing advice that was valid. A lot of it was taking apart the original uh, assertion that all writers are, all the writers are your competition, which is not true at all. And I guess we talked about Absolute bullshit. Absolute. And then, you know, other people pivoted and they were giving soft writing advice and they were giving just little helpful tidbits to people. So there was every range and color of like Twitter discourse and interaction in here from, you know, very good, helpful, supportive discourse to really funny jokes to really bad jokes to really, you know, toxic uh, trolling and arguing like it had all the shades and it just grew into this whole thing. And I feel like that happens a lot. And every time this happens... I, I find myself of two minds about it, Murr, okay? Two minds. Two minds. So one on the one hand, I think, why are we why why are we doing this? Why <laughs> like why because why, you know, one person who you know, any no one was listening to before. They're not you know, it's it's it's, a, it's something when somebody with a huge platform who's very prominent in the industry says something really dumb or harmful. You know, I feel like that's a different thing. You know, like we need to talk about like the J.K. Rawlings of the world because their work and them have such an influence on so many people. Like I get that. So I feel like that's a separate thing. Yeah. The other part is like when some troll or even or even a troll that has a large platform, but all they do is troll people like they just exist to shit post and get a reaction from people even those people too those people and the people with 12 followers i'm just wondering why do we have to broadcast and make their platform big and respond to this when it's so clearly intended to be wrong and inflammatory you know and i feel like when that kind of thing dominates a discourse i feel like it's completely counterproductive and a lot of times a waste of time and just it has the exact opposite effect that people are going for by examining it, you know? So I think if somebody with 12 followers tweets something really stupid, why can't we just ignore it and move on? 
So that's my one mind. My other mind is whoever said the thing, most often it is a thing or represents an attitude or an opinion or an aspect of publishing or writing that it's bigger than the dumbass who said it. It's, a, you know, it's an attitude that exists out there among a lot of people. And this person saying it is just a catalyst to examine this thing. And that's actually an incredibly valid and necessary thing to do. You know, so that's the other part of my brain. I, and I wrestle between should we be doing this? Should we be boosting this person? Should we be wasting all this time doing this? And maybe we need to do this to examine a larger issue that may be educational or potentially harmful or helpful to a lot of people. Well, and I don't. I, yeah, I, I just don't know realized one I, thing. Um, the sometimes I'll look at what's uh, trending on Twitter and I'll read very offensive replies and i'll look at a person's um twitter bio and they often have you know less than 100 followers yeah but they got picked up by the twitter uh they were talking about something popular so they got picked up and so more than those hundred people have seen it and i don't know how that excuse me how that algorithm goes if like maybe somebody retweeted them and then they got on the the this is what's trending list or what but there are ways more people can see you know Joey Blow with his 12 followers his hot take on something rather than uh just those 12 on the other hand, if they started it, then it's unlikely if we all do what we're supposed to do, which is just not engage. Um, yeah, I don't know. But but there are ways you can see people's replies to stuff that you never, ever wanted to because they, they're they trending. They're right. talking about a trending topic. But um, I do want to... I, I, well, it's, it's weird, Matt. I'm going to go into a little bit of personal thing here. Is, um, for some reason, I feel like and I know this is wrong. I'm I'm stepping up to say this is wrong. But I feel like because I've been doing these podcasts for so long and I've said so many things so many times, surely everyone's heard it. And I'm always I mean, uh sorry, I can't it's, it's someone who I thought would know a basic thing about writing and business just did the opposite of that. And I'm thinking, I've been talking about this for over a decade. Don't you know this? And I don't know if they listen to me or what, but it's like, for some reason, my brain says, since I have said this on a podcast, everyone knows it. But, um, the, the whole like competition thing is just baffling to me because I have, done what I've managed to do in my career through a lot of networking. Yes, I had to learn how to write well. That, of course, is a major aspect of it. But there's, you know, being friendly to people, enjoying going to cons, having other writers on my podcast, boosting other voices, helping careers, all of that is done because I like to be friendly to other writers and they've boosted my career and I've boosted theirs. And so if I walk around looking at every single person like my competition, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere, I don't think. Right. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Even if you're like on the same award ballot as somebody, it's still... Yeah, you don't take home the rocket, but as long, you know, enough people said you were in the top six. That's pretty good. You know, that's, I, I usually consider those, b being in those places as the win themselves. And I don't feel like I'm in competition with anybody else. Um, yeah, there, there's so few places you're literally in competition with somebody. I mean, yes, it's just like the math doesn't even support it. It's just an absurd assertion on so many levels. You know, I think you could certainly have a conversation about how publishing and editors and publishing houses view submissions, I guess, if you really wanted to get into it. But sure. not something you as a writer should actively be 
concern about like competing with other. It's just it's just ridiculous. There's no there's no basis in it. Like your your book is going to exist on its own, and like it's going to live or die by what it is. So. Yeah, if you were to take this this quote unquote advice to an advice an advice level, would that be snub other authors at cons? Don't give another author a boost on social media. Don't talk about who you're reading. What what exactly asshole actions are they suggesting? No, that's a really good point. And I don't. I mean, maybe before we talked about, it, I should have I should have checked to see if there was like a thread on it because i don't i don't know if the the individual followed up on that tweet but like there wasn't there was nothing beyond that in the original tweet which wasn't really that long a tweet so i feel like if there was a follow-up there they would have included it but like yeah, yeah. what are you supposed okay so you accept the premise that other writers are your competition like what are you supposed to do with that you can't like write faster than them like yeah. what are you, how, are you, how do you win this race i guess is what i'm asking you know is he is he seriously advising you like you said just go around and be a dick to people like you know you're gonna go around to other people and sabotage their keyboards like what what do you want <laughs> yeah or or you know somebody like a a big author invites you to dinner at a con and you're gonna say fuck you man I gotta go back and I gotta go write the better my yeah, better like book than your yours. favorite author invites you to like a dinner party or something and you write back sorry I don't eat with my competition that's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's that. Uh, no, that's but not that's good. Kind of, I, you know, I guess I guess that's kind of the point I was making, though. It's just so it's so fundamentally ridiculous. Like, why did did we really need the level of discourse that ended up surrounding that ended up surrounding that tweet? You know, but then again, I get I have the two minds saying where I'm like, well, there are, you know, I, I you do tend to forget. And you kind of, you know, you said that when you're like we do these podcasts, we say these things, you feel like everybody's heard it. You do forget that there are every day new people coming into this and newer people out there who don't know yeah. stuff that we, we take for granted as just being obvious and fundamental. So I'm sure there were a lot of people who did need to hear other writers are not your competition. <laughs> for any reason, yeah. just that one thing to worry the, about. There was an yeah. agent who said that, uh, you know, she got very angry when a prospective client talked to one of her existing clients about her as an agent. She got yeah. very angry with that and said, never do this. And people following her said, like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Thank you for letting me know. And everybody else in publishing is going, no, no, wait, 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 <laughs> wait yeah. a second. That's, that's very real. You know, when so, someone, yeah, yeah, when someone in a position of authority that you, that, or at least someone you have identified for yourself as being in a position of authority or knowledge says something, and you're new to this, you do tend to take it as gospel. So that yeah. is very, very valid. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was a, and by the way, the, the agent may be correct for her, but not for agenting overall. And she, I believe she said, well, you wouldn't, uh, talk to somebody about whether they're a good spouse, are you? And I'm thinking, well, if they have many, many spouses, I would, <laughs> <laughs> of course I would. They're a professional spouse. I'm interested in their references. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. I mean that that Asian is obviously allowed to have preferences. They're just yeah. but I state categorically that's a shitty preference, and it means she, that Asian is somebody I would never want to work with ever. If somebody, I'm sorry, man. And honestly, in any facet of life, if somebody is telling you don't check up on me, like yeah. there's probably something there. That's like that's a big red flag. You yeah, I'm know? gonna need a three day warning before you do any drug testing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they've you know that's uh, anyway. I mean, like yeah, there's a difference between that and going. It's like it's like so you may not you may not want to trust this individual's opinion on me, and here's why. Yeah. But then there's also like don't talk to anybody about me. That's just a totally different thing, and it's not. Nah. No, thank you. But like you said, um, even though that is ridiculous on his face to us, yeah, there were there. I remember, I remember like reading the replies to that tweet, and there were so many people. And you know, uh, there were there were there were authors who had uh, some books, and like it wasn't just like new writers or aspiring authors or whatever. There were people that just swallowing it whole and being like, "Oh God, I had no idea. I will never check on another agent again. That's terrible. And that's just it's bad for them and bad for their careers and just bad for the bad for the industry in general." So wow, I, I did not know that existing authors were, were doing that. I'm sorry, what? I, I, I didn't know that. that existing authors were doing that either. I just thought thought it was unagented people. 
I remember, I remember seeing a couple of people whose bios they had they had a fair amount of followers, and their bio said they had some books. So I was wow. very surprised. Um, well, I mean that you know that gets another thing where just because you published a book or two or three or five doesn't mean that you have any kind of mastery of the publishing industry. Yeah. I, you know, true. I, I don't even want to say how many books into this, and I still feel clueless most of the time. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah, like maybe I so maybe the harsh writing discourse did need did need to happen, and you know I'm sure I'm sure there are plenty of people who took a lot from it, and there were a lot of good things that that came from dovetailing off something like that. Like I said, people started giving soft writing advice, and I thought a lot of that was really very sweet and helpful and supportive, and came from a very cool place. So if it starts a trend like that, maybe you take the good with the bad. I don't know. I guess my big thing when all that was going on, I kind of came into it late. I was just like. You know what? I'm gonna set this one out. I just don't. I don't have energy. Yeah, it's a um, it's kind of a, a a rough thing. This is why I'm not on social media very much because it's it, it lately for me personally it feels like all or nothing. And I, um, if I want to get work done, it's gonna have to be the 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 nothing part. I'll check in every once in a while, but uh, not on a regular basis. So I missed the Twitter main character and the uh, hot takes of everybody else's your competition. No, and I mean that I'm really glad that you found that balance and that that works for you, and you understand that that's where you are. You know, it's like everything we like most of the things we talk about. It's a very individualistic thing, and there's no right or wrong answer to it, especially. Yeah how isolated so many of us are there are a lot of people who twitter is their only means of like connecting with other people right now that's a huge deal so a lot of people need twitter and that's fine you know a lot and even under optimal conditions a lot of people still need twitter or enjoy twitter and that's where they learn things or network or find information like it has a lot of negative aspects but it has plenty of positive aspects and if you enjoy or value or need a lot of those positive aspects you know, you got to determine your own level of involvement. I guess ultimately with the with the main character thing and when stuff like harsh writing advice blows up, it's not, it's probably not worth like examining it as a cultural phenomenon or the cultural validity of something like that. You really just have to like determine your level of involvement. In it. And it's okay to look at that and go, hey, I have something I feel is valuable to say that relates to this. Or I want to talk to, you know, my followers on my platform or my friends about this. So I'll go ahead and do that. It's also okay to go, you know what? I just, I don't have bandwidth for this right now. And I'm just going to sit this one out and not participate in it. And I'm going to, I'm going to mute harsh writing advice as a term for right now, because I, I need these other aspects of Twitter, but I don't have the bandwidth for this. That's another thing. You can also customize and should customize your social media experience. You know, you can, you can pick and choose uh, what you do on social media. It's not, you know, not to like riff on what you were saying because it's different, but it, but when you're on social media, it doesn't necessarily have to be an all or nothing thing. Like you are allowed to mute terms and ignore things and just participate in the things you want to participate in that are healthy and productive for you, you know? Yeah. I do think there's an onus of like, well, if I'm part of this community and I'm doing this writing thing and like I want to be part of writing Twitter, I got to get in on every, you know, uh, every big discourse that comes up. Like I got to make my voice heard. Like let's, you know, if you're really passionate about that, fine, but you don't need to do that to like be involved or, you know, feel like you're part of something. You can still be part of the community and not throw in on every big uh, hot, hot take that comes across the the spectrum, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I just think that's, that's kind of important because it can get a little overwhelming sometimes when you're, when you're on there and everybody, you know, seems to be talking about the same thing. And you either don't have an opinion or don't want to participate. It can feel very isolating within that context. And it's like, okay to set it out. It doesn't mean that like you're disconnected from everything or that you're disconnecting from everything. Yeah. So yeah. So writers are not your competition and you know, you need to determine your own level of involvement when it comes to the big social media main character kerfuffles. Kerfuffles. Yes. Fuffles or kerfuffles? Fuffles. It is fuffles. Mm Mm-hmm. You, you believe me. Yes, that's what we are. Is it kerfuffle or kerfuffle? Really getting into the important issues here, Mark. We are. We are. Um is there anything else we need to cover? We've 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 talked at length about two very important things. Yeah, no. Um I don't think we're gonna do feedback this episode. Someone did send me kind of a cool thing on Twitter. 
uh, one of our one of our repeat offenders. And by that, I just mean someone who <laughs> hashtags us a lot with questions, which is great. And we appreciate it. Uh, at Ruth Ruth Crafts, um, they sent me this uh, cool tweet by an Irish author who tweeted that uh, with their public lending right money from the library, they were able they were able to buy a new corduroy jacket. And uh, I thought that was they they just thought we'd like to see that because we talked about how in uh, certain countries you actually actively make money when your books are in libraries. Mm-hmm. So I guess in Ireland uh, and the UK, Ireland and the UK, yeah, uh, yeah, they got the public lending right money. So congratulations to uh, Mumbling Death Row, which is the Twitter handle of this author, on being able to afford a cool corduroy jacket with the lending right money from uh, their books being in libraries. And if you are a uh, UK author or an Irish author, you may want to get in on that if you're not aware of it. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yes. All right. Well, we need. I need to get back to uh, non-podcasty work, and I'm pretty sure you do too because you're a very busy man right now. So why don't you tell us where to find you on the interwebs and all the things? Yeah, I'm on. Uh, I'm on the Twitters that we've been talking about at uh, Matt F and Wallace. Uh, my beautifully redesigned website, matt-wallace.com. Um, and yeah, I have the new the new book that just came out, Bump, for your uh, for the nine, the eight, nine to twelve year olds uh, in your life. And uh, but I feel like adults can enjoy it too. But it is a middle grade novel. Very proud of it. Very very uh, means a lot to me. Would appreciate it if folks would go out and give it a shot, boost it on your social media, buy it, read it, review it, all that jazz. Thank you very much. Excellent. I am at Merverse.com. I also uh, stream my other podcast, I Should Be Writing Live, on Twitch Tuesdays and Thursdays at twitch.tv slash Mighty And I'm on the internet, uh, mostly Mighty Mer, Mighty Mer 2 on Instagram, because I don't remember my password for Mighty Mer, and I think it's attached to a Hotmail account, which I also can't remember the password for. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, that's pretty much me. I, I don't have any recent things out, but it is Hugo voting season and Nebula voting season. And um, we have a couple of things. I should probably write up an entire, uh, like, Ditch Diggers eligibility post. Um, but yeah, there, there's this podcast. There's Matt's debut book, Savage Legion. There's a couple of short stories I wrote. There's Escape Pod for semi prosing, which I co-edit. There's... Uh, so many things that we work on that we would like to be recognized professionally if you enjoy them and are one of the people who can nominate. So uh, if you if you can nominate for the Hugos or Nebulas, you probably already know how to do it. So uh, And if you can't, well, you should. Unless you're not a member of CIF1, then you can't nominate for the Nebulas. But I'm getting off topic here. No, but all of these things are uh, are important. So, yeah. Support us any way you can, folks. That's basically the bullet point here. That's we right. appreciate we appreciate y'all. Thank yes. you. Yes, patreon.com slash mighty is also how you can support the podcast. So um and that's about it. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Matt, and good luck with all the, the plates you're spinning. You as well, Mer. You can support us at patreon.com slash mighty Theme song by Devo Spice, devospice.com.